Pastor Chris's podcast. Mother Teresa once taught, Christ has no body now on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. It is your eyes through which Christ's compassion looks out to the world, your feet with which he must walk about doing good, your hands with which he blessed humanity, your voice with which his forgiveness is spoken, your heart with which he now loves. Her words are a poignant reminder to all who follow Christ as Lord that we are the church of Christ, established to serve as his physical presence on the earth. When we are faithful, Christ's love spreads and the world becomes a better place. If we are to represent Christ well, we must be faithful to his teachings and his way of life. For great harm is done whenever people misunderstand Christ's teachings or intentionally misuse Christianity to further their own selfish agendas. Therefore, it is imperative that we study and do our part, do our best, and are faithful. We enjoy so many blessings today because of the work of the church over the last 2,000 years. Consider the many blessings, some of which that we've talked about through the course of this message series. For instance, we now believe that sacrificial love is one of the highest values, uh, virtues in the world. That was not always the case prior to Christ. People did not necessarily believe that. We have the idea of charitable giving, not as a way to gain honor for ourselves, but as a way to um, just to simply do good to help our community and help those who are without hope. We, we now know that humility is one of the greatest virtues that a person can ever have. This was not always the case. Prior to Christ, great leaders did not think that humility was a, a good thing. It was a, considered a weakness. And yet today, we look to our great leaders, and one of the greatest qualities of a great leader is great humility. Peaceful protest, nonviolent resistance, equal rights for women, equal rights for all people, civil rights, the abolishment of slavery, these things came through the, the teachings of Christ and the efforts of Christian church. Public hospitals, the care of orphans, child abandonment laws, court-appointed attorneys. These were things that came to be through the work of the church. Religious freedom, ironically, something that, that we think came from Thomas Jefferson and the founding fathers of the American Revolution. But actually, if you go to Thomas Jefferson's library, you'll find in it a book written by Christian fathers from, century, from centuries ago. During the time of living as a small minority uh, within the Roman Empire, a persecuted minority. And these Christians wrote that there should be religious freedom. And in Thomas Jefferson's own library, he has the, that letter and the, the writing about religious freedom highlighted in Thomas Jefferson's library. So it would seem that Thomas Jefferson actually gleaned the ideas that we now practice from about religious freedom in America all the way back, going back all the way to the early Christian church. Today I want to address one final blessing that we have received from the beautiful church over the centuries. The blessing of intellectual learning. 
I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 through 16. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truth. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others for who can know the Lord's thoughts, who knows enough to teach him. But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When the church is faithful to Christ, we take on the mind of Christ and we help enlighten the world with God's wisdom and knowledge. The church caused the advancement of medicine, science, better government, wisdom, and education. In our day and age, there is a misconception that science and learning and the Christian religion stand against each other. And that is an unfortunate misunderstanding that has been perpetuated by ignorant people, both of a religious bent and of an atheistic bent. Jesus himself stated in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven that the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Jesus, as a first century Jew, came from a religious background that valued education and learning. Jewish children were taught to read the Torah from a very early age. Many even were able to recite the entire first five books of our Bible, the Torah. And they could make logical arguments about what they had memorized. Jesus' first followers were Jews, and they had that religious background of education. And they spread their love of learning to the Christian church as it began to expand out beyond Jewish communities into non-Jewish Gentile communities. The Christian faith always included a love for learning because Christ followers believed that their faith was logical and that knowing God required Christians to study and understand the doctrines and disciplines of their faith. Even though the earliest Christians were mostly from lower classes of society that tended to be uneducated, these believers were required to learn, to start with what they had and to advance. And in order to join the early church, new converts were often required to attend up to three years of classes before they could become fully initiated into the Christian church. Can you imagine if you were to come to me and say, hey, I'd like to join your church. And I said, great, here's three years of classes that you've got to take before you can do it. But that's the way it was. One of the great attractions of the church to common people, especially in ancient times, was the opportunity to receive an education. These were mostly people who did not have the opportunity to go to school or to learn. And here the church was offering it to them. 
Education was not commonly available to ancient, to the average person in ancient times, but the Christian church valued education as a road to deeper understanding of and devotion to God. Therefore, the church believed that all people should be able to receive an education and work diligently to provide educational opportunities for everyone, regardless of whether they were rich or poor. The earliest Christians began as a small minority in a sea of other religions that were often hostile to Christianity. However, the early Christians refused to use violence to defend themselves or to advance or to advance their cause. Instead, Christians said, let's debate. Let's debate the issues and let the group with the most compelling arguments stand. And over the course of two centuries, more and more people in the Roman world from all walks of lives found that Christians' ideas were the most compelling. And they began to join with the Christians. And so in the face of violent persecution and a myriad of, compelling, of competing religious ideas, Christianity rose to prominence as more and more people were won over to the Christian church by the reasoning of their arguments about their faith in Jesus Christ. The early Christians knew what they believed. They knew why they believed it, and they lived out their beliefs, even in the face of persecution, torture, and death. For they believed because they knew what the scriptures said. As, for example, Romans chapter 8, verse 37 no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, You have already won the victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit that lives in the world. You see, the early Christians could willingly embrace the loss of their property, their freedom, and even their life, because they believed absolutely that something greater had already been won for them. They had nothing left to lose in this life because they knew that Christ had won the victory and that their life would continue in his kingdom for eternity. For all who believe in Christ have eternal life. Christians as a people of the book, highly valued reading and writing. They set about recording the life and teachings of Christ and putting it to paper, which was no small task in the ancient world. Today, we, we just take for granted our easy access to the Bible. Most of us have numerous copies of it on our shelves at home, we can even access it on the internet, and most of us have a copy of it, even on our phone, on our smartphones. We forget, though, the tremendous, tremendous cost to preserve this scripture so that we have it today. The printing press, which automated the process of printing books, was not invented until 1436. That means that for 1,400 years, all books had to be copied by hand, word by word, letter by letter. 
And the cost in labor and materials to manufacture a book in the first few centuries after Christ's birth was incredible. The cost to reproduce just one Bible from Genesis to Revelation was the equivalent of 30 years of wages for the average person in the ancient world. Think about that for just a moment. How much money did you earn in the last year? Multiply that by 30. That is the cost to create one Bible in the ancient world. Yet these early Christians so valued scripture that they set their hands to copying them so that future generations would have these sacred words to guide our minds and our faith in what we need to know to be faithful to God through Jesus Christ. Early Christians were even willing to die in order to protect their sacred texts. Two female deacons of the early church, Catalina and Macaclius, were arrested and interrogated by Roman authorities who demanded that they give up their sacred texts. Because you see, the Roman officials knew that in order to get rid of Christianity, you had to get rid of the believers, but you also had to get rid of the written record of their faith. And so they told Catalina and Macaclius, tell us where are your codices that you've been copying. And they refused to tell them where the books were, even when they threatened to put them to death. And so these two deacons were put to death rather than to surrender their sacred text. And yet today, so many of us, we pay no attention to this sacred word or we take it so casually, we don't even read it. When so many thousands of people risked their lives or gave up their lives so that we can have these sacred words today. Well, one might think it was a waste of human life that these two women would sacrifice their lives for the sake of a book. But you must understand that these early Christians really believed with all their hearts what their book said, that Christ has already indeed won the victory. And that the main purpose of this life is to further the purpose of Christ's coming kingdom. We who follow Christ have already died to our selfish ambitions. And to die a physical death for Jesus is only to begin our eternal life in Christ's heavenly kingdom. Easy to say in our time. But these early Christians lived that and experienced that so that we have the words of Christ today. These are not just words. They were not just words for them and they ought not be just words for us either. They are truth. When you hold the Bible, I want you to remember the thousands of Christians who dedicated their lives and livelihoods to preserving the words of these texts so that we can read them today. It was a tremendous sacrifice that they willingly made. And the early Christians' efforts were not limited only to Christian texts. They also believed that other important documents, classic learning, should be preserved as well. 
The reason that we know as much as we do about philosophers such as Socrates and Plato and Aristotle as well as others is because those early Christians preserved their ideas as well by copying their texts and teaching their philosophies throughout the centuries, passing on that classical knowledge to future generations. Christians love for learning flourished even more after the Roman Empire officially converted to Christianity. With the support of the empire, Christians were able to establish great institutions of learning that helped to advance government, science, medicine, wisdom, philosophy, mathematics. Ironically, The so-called Dark Ages, which modern Enlightenment thinkers like to blame on the Christian church, was not actually caused by the church. Rather, it was caused by the collapse of civilization, which often meant also the collapse of many of these Christian institutions of learning. Christian education and love for learning has inspired so many benefits to modern society. In scientific discoveries throughout the ages. In fact, most of the the more influential scientists during the Enlightenment period were actually Christians. Their love of God and their desire to know Him and His creation inspired them to delve deeply into scientific investigation to discover the mystery of, of God's universe. A list of Christian scientists is incredibly long, but just to to point out a few of the most known ones. For instance, Galileo, Galilei, discovered that the earth revolved around the sun. He was a Christian. So was Robert Boyle, who defined elements and compounds and the mixture and mixtures and the first gas law. Isaac Newton, who developed theories of gravity and laws of motion, was a Christian. Michael Faraday, who discovered electromagnetic induction. Werner Heisenberg, one of the primary creators of quantum mechanics. And Louis Pasteur, who discovered the principles of vaccination, microbial fermentation, and pasteurization. These scientists and countless others believed deeply in Jesus Christ and were faithful members of the church. Some of them were not only scientists, but they were also preachers or Bible teachers. Their love of learning and the drive to search for, to search the mysteries of God's creation were not deterred, but enhanced by their Christian faith. The Christian faith challenges us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, And with all our mind, God gave us our intellect as a tool to help us to know him better and to bring his heavenly kingdom upon the earth. Therefore, let us not shy away from learning, but let us join with Christians from throughout the ages who have helped to make our world a better place by promoting education and intellectual pursuits for the glory of God. And let us rebuke the slanderous idea that the church is only for the ignorant or the unlearned. Let us show the atheist that true knowledge comes from God through Christ. 
let us be eternally grateful to God and his church for the incredible contributions that have made our world a better place. I want to end with one last story that fits really well with the practice of Holy Communion today. It's a story, a true story, about a man named Thomas Bramwell Welch. Welch lived from 1825 to 1903. He was a British-American Methodist minister and dentist. He pioneered the use of pasteurization as a means to prevent the fermentation of grape juice. If you enjoy Welch's grape juice, you have this Methodist minister, dentist, to thank. So I guess you can drink your Welch's grape juice and get all the sugar on your teeth and get cavities and go see your dentist and you can knock it all out in one fell swoop. But the problem was that in, in, in the 1800s, in the early 1900s, we didn't have refrigerators and um, we really didn't have grape juice. He sort of invented grape juice. You say, that's crazy. We have always had grape juice and that's true. If, as long as you've got grapes, you can squeeze the grapes out of them and you've got grape juice. But the problem is, it only lasts for a day or two before it turns into wine. Yeah. And guess what? Grapes are only available in the ancient world during grape harvest season. But churches celebrate Holy Communion Every Sunday or every at least once a month throughout the centuries. And in the 1800s and 1900s, the Christian church was trying to fight against one of the evils of society, which was addiction to alcohol. So the church was encouraging people to abstain from drinking alcohol, but it was a bit hypocritical because they would tell everybody, don't drink alcohol. Then they'd come to church on Sunday and celebrate Holy Communion and drink alcoholic wine. But there was nothing that could be done about it because unless you squeeze the grapes that Sunday morning, you're going to have wine. Here's an experiment for you, a scientific experiment. Buy you some grapes from the grocery store and take them home. Squeeze out the juice into a glass. Don't put it in your refrigerator. Just set it on your kitchen counter and leave it there and see how many days it lasts before it turns into wine. It'll only last a day or two. And uh, unfortunately, if you're looking for a cheap way to get wine, it won't taste very good. <laughs> but it will be wine. Well, this guy, this Methodist minister, he says, there's got to be a way for us to use science to help the church have communion wine that's non-alcoholic. And so he looked at Louis Pasteur and he said, well, maybe the, some of the techniques that Louis Pasteur is using, pasteurized things, could be used with this grape juice. And sure enough, it worked. He was able to create grape juice that resisted fermentation and would last longer. And then he tried to market it to the churches. He said, here you go. Here's a way for you to have communion without using alcoholic wine. Unfortunately... Churches being what they are, they're kind of resistant to change and tradition, and they preferred drinking alcoholic wine in communion to the grape juice. And so when it didn't work out to market that to the churches, he went and started marketing it to the common everyday person. And guess what? Who doesn't like some good old Welch's grape juice? Man, that stuff's good. 
Well, when you go to the grocery store and you walk down the juice aisle and the most prominent brand that you see there is Welch's Grape Juice, you can thank the church for developing that product that you enjoy. But today we're going to celebrate Holy Communion as we typically do using grape juice as opposed to alcoholic wine. And in this practice of Holy Communion, whether it's with grape juice or wine, it reminds us of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. For the grape juice reminds us of the blood that Christ shed on the cross. And the bread reminds us of how he gave us his body and how his sacrifice atoned for our sins, made it possible for us to be forgiven and have a, a repaired and wholesome relationship with God and each other. For on the last night that Christ was with his disciples, he shared one last meal. And around the table, as they ate a very common food that they ate at just about every meal, bread and wine, But he changed it and made it something special that we still practice to this day to remind us of him. For he took the bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body that is given for you. And likewise, after the meal, he took the cup and he raised it to heaven and he asked the Lord to bless it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood, the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for giving your Son Christ, who gave his life on the cross, shed his blood for our sins, so that we might be forgiven, we might be made whole, that we might be in a full relationship with you where our sin has been washed away and there is nothing between us and you. As we come today to remember this meal Christ shared with his disciples, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon this bread and this wine, that they might be the body of Christ and his blood, And pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that are gathered here today to receive this sacrament. That we might be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Lord, we know that this is not actually the body and blood of Christ. But it symbolically represents his presence with us here now. And so we thank you for pouring out your spirit upon us now. As we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If I could have my assistants and the musicians come. Tom, this is the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sarah and Dale, the body and blood of our Lord is given for you.
It is our tradition that all are invited and welcome to come to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, if you are a member of the church, all are welcome to come receive the blessing that he wants to give, so long as you come with a heart sincere.